Those of you who have been around St. Andrew as long as I have may know that I have spoken about these eight verses from Matthew chapter 22 on a number of occasions. Sometimes in the context of Christian stewardship, or in other words, what we do with or how we use our money, because this passage has to do with the use of our money. Sometimes in the context of a mission to which we believe God had called our congregation for which we needed to raise large amounts of funds like this church campus, for example. And because this passage also takes us to the intersection of religion and politics and the dangers of compromise and the payment of taxes when required, it might also spark your interest in the context of the times that we're living in right now as the curtain rises on what I would refer to as a debate, if you'll pardon the expression, or a rather tricky religious political interview between Jesus and two very powerful groups of people one of which was political, one of which was spiritual, about the issue of paying taxes that are owed to the government. And because this passage has all kinds of things that apply to our lives, no matter what our context, I want to review at least some of them to refresh your memory or to fill in the blanks if you haven't been at St. Andrew quite as long as I have. Anyway, the first group in the passage, or the spiritual group, was known as the Pharisees, which literally means separatist or separated ones, of which there were thousands in Israel who served as uh, enforcers, interpreters, and, and sometimes makers of religious laws for the people of Israel. In addition to the fact that they were super religious, the Pharisees were also ardent nationalists who vehemently opposed the occupation of their fatherland by the forces of the Roman Empire. And while some Pharisees ended up defecting from the movement in order to follow Jesus, like Nicodemus and Joseph and Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, it's also true that most Pharisees saw Jesus as an existential threat to their religious authority, their way of life, their legalistic approach to getting right with God. The other group, or the political group in the passage, was known as the Herodians. They weren't religious at all and were a political movement uh, dedicated to preserving the role and the rule of King Herod, who was a cruel individual and a brutal leader and a puppet king of the Roman Empire. They weren't really about Jesus being a spiritual threat as much as they were worried about him being a political threat given his popularity, leaving them to wonder if he had enough of it in order to actually lead the overthrow of the Roman occupation, which is a lot of religious people also wanted. Anyway, Matthew's report begins by telling us that the Pharisees, who by the way hated the Herodians, with a passion, because of their godlessness and because of their association with the Roman Empire, nevertheless compromised their integrity. And they entered into a partnership, an alliance with the Herodians in order to get rid of Jesus, which would satisfy their spiritual objectives and also the Herodians' political objectives. And they do it by trying to set a trap for Jesus in which they attempt to get him to say something that would incriminate himself so deeply that it would put an end to his ministry right then and there. And this trap came in the form of a question about money. After some false flattery, they ask him, is it lawful 
to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Now that question sounds pretty easy to me and I would answer by saying, yes, if it's a law, then it's lawful to pay the tax. You may not like it, but you've got to do it. For Jesus though, it really wasn't that easy. And that's because for Jesus, that question represented two impossible obstacles and decisions for him. If on one hand, he had said yes, he would have represented himself as being in favor of paying the imperial poll tax to the Roman emperor. And that was a problem for three reasons, one of which is that they hated the emperor, at least the, the Pharisees did. And the fact that the emperor had occupied their fatherland and was now making them pay for it, which had been going on by this time for about 35 years. A bigger issue, however, is that this, this poll tax or this imperial tax had to be paid with Roman currency, which means that Jesus also would have been endorsing their disobedience to the biblical injunction of staying away from handling foreign currency or pagan currency with the graven image of Tiberius Caesar on it, which leads us to the biggest issue of all, which is that Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor, had set himself up as a god, a deity, even referring to himself as the son of the divine or the son of God. And so this issue about paying taxes isn't something that just got under the political skin of some oppressed people. This got on their last religious nerve that went straight to the issue of their loyalty to God. And so if, if Jesus would have said, yes, it's the law, you've got to do it, he would have been breaking the first commandment. He would have been violating his own teachings about the sovereignty of God, which would have been interesting since he is the son of God. And in doing so, he would have discredited himself and alienated the very people that he was trying to reach with the good news of the kingdom. And that is exactly what the Pharisees wanted. On the other hand, if he said no and encouraged their civil disobedience, even on the grounds of religion, he would have been committing an act of rebellion against Rome risking his arrest and trial for sedition and a premature end to his ministry and to whatever political power and influence that he might have had, which is exactly what the Herodians as well as the Pharisees wanted. And so this is the trap. It's what we would call today a double bind. So that Jesus loses no matter how he answers the question. But of course, they don't realize who they're dealing with here, and uh, Jesus exercises a third option. When he goes on the offensive, and he says to the Pharisees and the Herodians, why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Which is a word that is still used today with reference to people in religion as well as politics, although its origins were actually in the Greek theater because a hypocrite literally means a play actor or a pretender. Why are you putting on this act, says Jesus? Show me a coin that is used to pay the tax, which they do. And that is when Jesus starts to put them in the very trap that they set for him. 
as he looks at the coin, he asks them, whose head is this? Whose name? Although in the King James Version of the English Bible, he says, whose image is this? Which is actually very significant because the Greek word for image in the New Testament is the word icon, image. Our uh, Orthodox Christian friends use icons and images as part of their faith. Whose image is this? And they answer the question, obviously, knowing it's a, a rhetorical question, and they say it's the emperor's, although, again, in the Greek Testament, it, it actually says it's Caesar's. And then Jesus delivers the last word when he says to them, then give to the emperor or to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. It's his icon. Give to the emperor the emperor's icons. And then give to God what belongs to God. Give to God the images, the icons of God. What he is saying to them and to us is give God you. Because what did God say at the dawn of creation? Let us make humankind in our image. So the women and men and girls and boys are the images. We're the icons of God in this world. The name Veronica in Greek means woman of victory or Nike, which is the Greek word for victory. Although here in America, we pronounce it Nike when we go shopping for our shoes, victory. But in Latin, the word Veronica means true image. Vero icon, the image of God. Give God you. And with that, the interview, the debate, the conversation is over. And yet this isn't just Jesus' clever way of getting out of and avoiding a question about the payment of taxes that are owed to the Roman government or of easing the political and religious tensions that existed in his time or uh, of getting out of the trap that was set for him by the Pharisees and the Herodians, although he does manage to do all of that. In this one clever verse, Jesus settles a world of issues about you and about your life, and about me, and my life. First of all, it settles the issue of ownership. And who really has ultimate authority and lordship over my life? And believe it or not, there are a lot of people for whom that is an unsettled question because they don't know or they're searching or they've made the wrong decision about it. And some of the people of this world actually have decided that their life belongs completely to them. But not the icons of God. We belong to him his sovereignty, his authority, his lordship. And then once you settle that issue of ownership, what happens next is a lot of other issues begin to fall into place, like how I spend my time, what I do with my money, 
how I serve my community, how I exercise my citizenship, how I understand and know the purpose of my life, no matter what my calling or vocation happens to be. That settles a number of issues. And then the third thing that happens is that we begin to look at other people differently as the icons of God, as God's works of art. And that gives birth to a new way of treating people, of seeing people, of relating people. And so when you give God you, because God in Christ gave himself to you and for you, a lot of things can change about your life. Isn't it interesting that the person who gave us this passage, who told this story, this episode in the life and ministry of Jesus is none other than Matthew, the tax collector, who compromised his religion, who cooperated with the Romans for his own political gain and fortune until Jesus came along and showed him that he's an icon of God, a child of God, saved by grace, that would lead the true Son of God to a cross where he would make the payment for our freedom, for our forgiveness, and for our life. That's the one to whom we belong. Or, in the words of a meme that uh, was posted by a Facebook friend of mine last week, in the next 16 days, don't let the elephants and the donkeys let you forget that you belong to the Lamb. And even though we're not going to see it personally, at least not most of us today, this afternoon here at St. Andrew, at a time of worship for an intimate group of family members and friends, we're going to celebrate the rite of confirmation for a group of ninth graders rescheduled from the day of Pentecost as they pledge themselves and their lives to Jesus Christ for time and for eternity. Which just goes to show you that Matthew 22 is still working. It's still happening. As we remember the one to whom we belong, who gave his life to us so that we can respond by giving our lives back to him, rejoicing in the triumphs and the victories and the Nikes of our Savior, come what may, giving thanks to God that even though Caesar gets what is his, God also gets what belongs to him and what belongs to God forever and ever is you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.